Jesus. Um, and John comes from a family uh, with extensive Christian heritage, and that really has, has set him up well for what God is, is doing uh, in his life and, and through him now. Uh, he graduated from Wheaton College in 1977 and then went on to teach uh, vocal music in Iowa City West High School, uh, where he also served as a part-time youth pastor. In 1988, John moved his family uh, here to Enid and was on uh, the faculty at Phillips University, where he taught in the, uh, the music, he was a music professor and chair of the music department, uh, ending his time at, at Phillips as a registrar in 1998. And then he joined the, uh, the staff at Emanuel Enid, where he served for 18 years and brought uh, great leadership to their missions program. Uh, John currently lives in Hill City, South Dakota with his wife, Mary. They have four children and four grandchildren. And uh, in, in 2016, uh, God led John to start the John Stam, uh, or the, the uh, excuse me, the Stam Family Ministry Association to be a part of assisting other ministries and churches in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in word and action. John has helped uh, organize short-term trips uh, and missions in uh, New York City, uh, as well as in Poland and Niger and other places in the world. And, and John actually uh, taught me, I, I've been saying it wrong for years, it's not Niger, it's Niger. So I, I need to retrain my, <laughs> my mouth there. Uh, but he has been a part, uh, a significant part of, of helping us to be involved in what God is doing uh, in Niger with the water well drilling project, helped uh, facilitate trips there. So it's our privilege this morning to, to welcome John Stam. John, would you bring the word to us this morning? Scott, I'm impressed. Niger, good job. At least you didn't do what so many, they butchered in between, Niger. So Niger, Niger, either one works. But uh, boy, it is a delight to be with you. Um, as I look out, I see friends that I've known for many years um, and some acquaintances I've, I've known through my years here um, in Enid, Oklahoma. In fact, one of my very first memories is shortly after we moved to Enid, some of you remember uh, Roger and Edna Jansen, and uh, they invited us here. We came and had a wonderful time in worship, Sunday school, and then they had us to dinner at their house, and we thought, wow, we'd love to live in this neighborhood. Little did we know that less than a year later, we would buy a house right across the street from Roger and Edna. And... (laughs) We tried to move away from Enid once, um, Dwight, and we just couldn't do it after a short stint in Colorado where I was, uh, I have a little bit of a background in electrical engineering, so I was doing some sales after Phillips closed in Denver because that was always the dream, and I ended up driving on I-25 far longer than I was in the mountains, so coming back to Enid was wonderful. Our house hadn't sold, we moved right back in, and I started on staff with a manual, and continued to be involved with your folks here, um, uh, known Chris since he was, man, just getting started in ministry, had a number of wonderful times judging Tri-State right up there with his dad, and um, I have to tell you that Enid Mennonite Brethren has the best reputation in all of Tri-State for their judging, for how you take care of the judges. 
the pastries, the coffee, the food that you served. I always wanted to come back here. Emmanuel didn't do anything for us. So I loved coming to EMB for the way you treated us. So um, many, many wonderful memories. A number of your folks, like Roger Ettinger, has been on multiple mission trips with me. Of course, you know Brent Croker, who's also known as Monsieur Elephant in Mr. Elephant in, uh, in Niger, has been really the mainstay of our drilling program. Kenyon Gerbrandt, um, dear friend, I actually served on the board of LEI for you know, at this age, my memory grows dim. I can't remember if it was four years or six years, but I served on the board of LEI and interfaced with Kenyon in that way, but he's also an integral part of our ministry um, in Niger. So lots and lots of connections with uh, Enid Mennonite Brethren. Our current pastor in Hill City, we go to the Little White Church. Of course, anyone from any racial background is welcome, but it just happens to be called the Little White Church. He grew up in Nebraska in a Mennonite Brethren Church and then pastored in Mountain Lake, which I know is a stronghold of, of Mennonites and Mennonite Brethren and it's only 60 miles from my home where I grew up in Worthington, Minnesota. So lots of, lots of connections. Well, I don't have, this is really dangerous, Scott. There's no clock back there. So I'm going to have to either do it by feel, but I do have my Bible with me. And my Bible does have my, uh, oh, there, oh, th- you know, th- that's another thing about growing old. We get blind as well as deaf, so as well as the memory goes. So anyway, but I do have it here if I can see it, so I might have to bring it up close to see. So lots of connections with this church, lots of love um, for this community. We came here with two boys. They were Born in Iowa City, as Scott mentioned, I did my graduate work uh, at the University of Iowa, Um, did a master's, started teaching vocal music, and then went on to do the doctoral degree, because my goal was someday to be um, a music professor at a Christian college, and I knew they didn't make much money, so I stayed there and worked, and then I did carpentry on the side, because I thought if I ever could own a house, it'd be a fixer-upper, I'd have to build my own. So did all of that as a part of my training, got my, uh, 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 my degree there, and then got a call from another croaker, um, Brent's aunt, Charlotte Croker, who invited me to come to uh, Phillips University. That was back in 1988. So lots of interconnections with folks in Enid. She had gone to uh, Wheaton. She had heard about me. And so after Jerry left, who was actually a minister of music here, uh, Jerry Blackstone, I came in and took his place at Phillips, expecting to say four or five years, and then on to the next better, bigger college, hope someday to be at Wheaton College, my alma mater, and 30 years later, 28 years later, God had to finally kick me out of Enid to get me into the next door. You know, they say, <clears throat> well, when God opens the door, you walk through it. I would love to sound that spiritual. For me, it's a little bit more like the tales of Narnia, I stumble through the wardrobe and suddenly I fall out in the snow and I find myself in Narnia and it's I pick myself up and I go, Lord, where is this leading? And you just keep plugging forward. And that's been the way it is with my life. None of the professions, none of the places where I worked were strategic for me in the sense that I planned and planned and planned. 
They were things that God just miraculously opened the door and I stumbled through and made lots of mistakes. And this ministry or missions endeavor is no different. I stumbled through that door. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about my experience in stumbling through the wardrobe, so to speak. Now, I have to give credit to um, Patrick Morley. Some of you know him. He started Man with the Mirror. I'm in a men's Bible study, and about a month ago, he had a Bible study entitled, What if God Told You That Money Could Buy Happiness? And that perked up my ear, because we've all been told, money can't buy happiness. The root of, of evil is what? You know, everybody wanted to tell me the root of evil was money. But you're right. The root of all evil is the love of money. And you can't buy happiness. But Patrick Morlick said, and what I hope we'll see at the end of my time with you this morning, that money can buy happiness. It can buy you tremendous joy. And Scott, I'm so thankful that you took the offering before the message rather than after. <laughs> Being the hired gun to come in and encourage people to give, that's not necessarily my strong suit. My strong suit is to encourage you in Christ and to give you a sense for the joy in following Christ. It is joyful. It is not odious. Even when you're facing death, it can be enjoyed. I want you to come back tonight to hear the story of my great aunt and uncle. Some have said my grandfather, and I remind them, if it was my grandfather, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. So it's my great uncle and, um, and how they faced death with great joy. And so therefore, I've entitled tonight's Triumph in Death. So come back tonight. Come and hear that story. But this morning, I want to look at two different individuals. Because I've also entitled this, What if Counting the Cost Could Bring Joy? Because I know counting the cost is your, is your theme for this missions conference. And I, like you, I grew up, we were talking a little bit about our backgrounds. And I, by the way, I'm a pacer. I'm, I'm, not, more, I'm not really a preacher. I'm more of a teacher. Some of my former students would tell you a not very good teacher. But my mom would say I'm a great storyteller. So um, I'm going to tell you some stories this morning. But um, so we're going to look at a couple of individuals in Scripture that I think uh, really bring to mind the joy in raising our arms. I love that last song. I love that last song. I'm, I don't know that one. But we're going to take it back and we're going to sing it. That sense of raising your arms to the Father and the joy uh, that we have. I want to look at Luke 18. We're going to look at two individuals in particular as I then begin to tell you a little bit about the ministries that we're cooperatively involved in and about some who have experienced great joy. So in Luke 18, we have a number of stories. We're going to look specifically at the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 through 23. And it's going to be up on the screen here in just a moment. But before we read, I want to set the scene. What is the context 
And I went way back in Luke, and like you, I've read it many times, but I always love reading it again because there's something new that pops out at me. And there were some connections in these stories that I hadn't made before. In fact, one of them I made just last night as I was over with Sarah and Jeremiah Harrion, you support their ministry, um, in Forgotten Ministry, and we were celebrating Jeremiah's 40th birthday. And you know they've adopted two little girls. So one of their little girls is going to come into this story because it emphasized or it came a picture of what I want to tell you about and what I want to leave you with this morning. So needing to move on. So let's set the stage. At the beginning of 18 um, is the story of the Pharisee and the publican. And just to paraphrase, this is the Stam version Um, So here's the Pharisee, look how great I am, look how much I give, look at my position, my possessions, and look at, I'm amazing. And if anybody deserves to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's me. And man, I feel so sorry for the scum that's down there. It's too bad they can't be like me. And that's Pharisee. There's the publican. Actually, there's a story before this, but we'll get to that. Then there's the publican, and the publican says, woe is me, I can't even look up to heaven. And it's a parable. And Jesus says, that man will enter the kingdom of heaven. Before that, he tells another story about the woman, the pestering woman, and the judge. And she's being persecuted by some individuals, and she goes to the judge asking for protection. And this judge doesn't respect God. I think the word is fear. He doesn't fear God, and he doesn't fear man. He doesn't really care. He's about himself. Now, hopefully, he cares about justice, but at that moment, it's after hours. He's off the clock, and he doesn't want to mess with her. And he ignores her and ignores her and ignores her. But you know what? Finally, she keeps pestering him, and you know the story. What does he do? I don't fear God, I don't fear man, but this woman is wearing me out. You ever been there? She is wearing me out. And he says, so, okay, squeaky wheel, you get the grease. And then Jesus says, what about your father? Your father in heaven who loves you dearly. How much more will he give you than that judge who doesn't respect man? Okay, so then we move on. And we move on beyond those stories and we go to a real life story. And we go to the rich young ruler. And let's read together, if you would. This is, um, oh, I can't read that. (laughs) I made my font too small. So uh, let me find it in my Bible. And we get to the rich young ruler, and I'm reading the New American Standard, so maybe rather than reading it together, since I can't read that, and maybe you can, let me read for you. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit uh, eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? I love that. What a way to respond to the guy. Why do you call me good? And he says, No one is good except God alone. Boy, that is a whole sermon right there on the concept of good. There's nothing outside of the nature of God that is good. It is God who is the definer. 
He is what is good. Everything he does is good. But I won't park there. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not uh, bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Jesus gives him the list. And he says, I've done it. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, "Uh, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You know, that story is so interesting to me in terms of the nature of this man. He knew there was something missing in his life. He knew he wasn't right with God. He'd attempted to keep all of the Old Testament law. I believe this list that Jesus gave him was just kind of a shorthand for the entire Testament law. This was just some things that Jesus picked out of the Ten Commandments. But I think in his heart, he had tried to keep the law, but he still knew there was an emptiness. And so he was drawn to Jesus. And he went. But I love this picture. This is by Heinrich Hoffman. It it hangs in Riverside Church in New York City. It was a John D. Rockefeller uh, purchase. And I love the tip of his head and the downcast of his mouth and that frown that says, I've counted the cost and it's too expensive. For you see, for that rich and ruler, Jesus went right to the heart and basically he was asking him, in what do you place your faith? It's not the action of giving the money. It would appear so, but we're going to find out in just a minute. He doesn't ask others to give up all of their wealth. He was going for the heart of what this man was placing his faith and his trust in. See, the woman was helpless when she approached the judge. She admitted her helplessness. The publican admitted his helplessness. The Pharisee was proud. The rich young ruler was sad because he wasn't prepared to change that thing in which he placed his trust. He went away sad, but he still had his money and stuff. So, but he went away sad. His money did nothing to help him. Let's look at Luke 19, 1 through 10. As you're turning there, let me just then respond. The people were shocked when Jesus said that, those who were listening. Because in their minds, the wealthy religious were always the ones who were going to get in. They were the ones scraping by. They had to buy a pigeon for the offering or the sacrifice rather than the goat or the bullock. And and so they could never measure up in terms of the size of their offering. And we're all concerned about what? The size of of our abilities, of our fame, of our ability to make God love us more. The publican knew it was helpless. He couldn't do it. 
So all the people listening say, well, what, what are we going to do? And then Jesus has this really interesting thing. He says, it's harder for a camel to what? Get through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Does that mean there's something inherently problematic about a rich man? And I've heard a lot of sermons on that eye of the needle and they equivocate in ways in which it's basically, you know, if you just try harder and force that camel through, you, he can get through. And just like if you, if you work harder to please God, you can get through that eye of the needle. But Jesus lays all of that to rest when he says, no, you don't get it. What's impossible for man is possible for whom? For God. So in that Place, I believe that it's impossible for that camel to get to, through the eye of the needle. Whether he's talking about a needle for sewing or the needle gate or whatever. It's impossible. Now it's not impossible for a rich man to get into heaven if he doesn't see himself as rich. In the sense that his faith and his trust is in his wealth and his possessions. That's at the heart, I believe, of what Jesus is saying. Well, let's look at the next one. Then Peter goes on. Peter still doesn't get it. He's trying to figure it out. So we've got um, the uh, woman. She's persistent. We've got um, the Pharisee. He's proud. We have the publican. He's humbled. We have the rich young ruler. He's sad. And we have Peter clueless. So let's go on. Let's see what we get now out of the next one. And this is in uh, Luke 19. And this is Zacchaeus. Now we know the publican is a tax collector and they're reviled. Zacchaeus is a publican. He's reviled. But let's see how he responds. And we read in Luke 19 verse 1, he entered Jericho, was passing through, and there was a man called the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He's rich, just like the rich young ruler. And I love how God has all of these in line. He was rich. But he was also what? Small in stature. He was like me. Couldn't see over the crowd. I remember being in China. First time in my life I could look over people's heads. But then I got to the United States and it was like, okay, I'm looking over the top of the back of people's necks again. For he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, and I can't help but fall into that song, Zacchaeus was a... But I won't sing it for you. Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for today I must, what, stay at your house. I love this. And Zacchaeus hurried down and came down and received him, how? Gladly. Received him gladly. A rich man who received him gladly. I like the picture of the arms up. When they saw it, they all began to grumble. There's always grumblers. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a singer. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions. He's not even prompted. God doesn't even say to him like the rich young ruler, Give away all of your possessions and come follow me. Why? Because Jesus already knew where his heart was. 
it approached him gladly. That wasn't the block. He wasn't putting his faith at that point in time. He knew he needed a savior. And he put his arms up gladly. And he says, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. Now if it was like the rich and ruler, Jesus would have said, no, that's not enough. You've got to give them all away. But he didn't because he knew where his heart was. And then he says, and if I have defrauded anyone, I will give four times back as much. I love that, and if. He doesn't even know if he defrauded anyone. But if I did, it'll be four times. Man, I'm lining up to tell him, hey, you defrauded me. No. Hopefully he kept fairly good books so he could, he could prove that. But you know, it's that childlike faith. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. An indication that Zacchaeus now is a possessor of the kingdom of heaven. He is a resident on this earth. His wealth was not a hindrance for him. Now I left out one story. Back in 17, it ends with the little children. And Jesus is doing what? He's saying, no, not Jesus, forgive me. The disciples are saying, no, keep them back. Keep them back. A little bit like Sarah was last night with her youngest. She was always inserting herself into my face, saying, I love you. Or saying things like, I got you something. And it was just constant, this constant um, pestering, we would say. I always thought the disciples were saying, keep them away because they're noisy or because they don't count or because they're not important. But I think it's because little kids, those four and five-year-olds, they pester you. When, when they get in your face, if you've got grandkids, they want to grab your beard, your ears. They, they just want to be with you. They want to part of you. And they instinctively know they're helpless. They instinctively know that you are far more powerful than they. And this young little girl, she just, every time mama would kind of push her away, she'd be right back grabbing my arm. And, and that sense of childlike enthusiasm. And that's what I see in this whole sequence of passages. And when Jesus says, unless you come to me like a little child, you will not possess the kingdom of heaven. The rich man went away sad. Zacchaeus did what? He went away glad. Actually, he came glad. So let me briefly then connect on to a person who I believe displays this childlike joy. This counting the cost brings me joy more than it brings me pain. Who I think is like Zacchaeus, who's like the little child, Pastor Yacouba. You all know him. He's been here, Pastor Yacouba and Renata. It's a ministry that we share in. As you may know, Yacouba was raised poor, abandoned by his father, had to 
um, beg on the street for his food. Later was encouraged to go to school but couldn't afford it. Finally, an uncle helped pay for it. Was at the top of his class all the way through. Strong Muslim. Had memorized parts of the Quran. Came to the United States to get his bachelor's degree on a USAID grant. Went back to um, Africa and uh, began to work. Still a Muslim. Married, had children, had a couple of wives. Decided to come back to the States and get his master's degree. Abandoned everything, left everything behind. Wife, family, possessions. Came to the States, but this time he planned to stay for good. He was going to get his piece of the American pie. And he stayed. And he went to work. Iowa Beef Packers. He was working in Garden City, Kansas, Dodge City, Kansas area. And... uh, He lies down in his bed one day in his hotel and he sees a vision of Jesus with a wafer. And that begins the journey for Pastor Yacouba in terms of his Christian walk and in terms of his Christian life. All kinds of events occur, numerous visions. He ends up in Tulsa, Because God gave him a vision of a school with hands praying. And people in Enid said, oh, that's Oral Roberts University in Tulsa. So he went there, met Renata there, married her. And they have two beautiful children, Renata and Levy. And we have a picture of them um, right here. A picture from a few years ago with their ECS t-shirts on. And now Levy and Sarah all grown up. Sarah is in her final year of high school, OBA and Emmanuel Christian School have made it possible for these two kids to go to school all the way through. They have paid the tuition for them. And a great thank you to Emmanuel Christian School and OBA for that. So Yacouba makes his, he begins to form his nonprofit here in Enid, and that's where we enter. I get called into uh, the lead pastor's office one day, introduced to Yacouba and Renata, hear their amazing testimony, and that begins our journey. We make our first trip to Niger in 2004. In the spring of 2004, I go to Brent Croker, and I say, I think he was harvesting. I think it was June. And I said, you want to go to Africa? And he said, I'd love to. And that began our water well drilling process, and you know much about that. To date, the ministry has exploded. We have the mother church, and uh, this sense of unity is preached. Multiple tribes, white, black, Asian, the multiple, the, uh, the, the mother church, which is evangelizing and planting churches and doing discipleship Next slide, Dave. And uh, doing evangelism out in the rural areas. Conducting baptism and all of the evangelistic and training for that. Pastor training that we're involved in. Um, Orphans and abandoned children ministries. Prison ministries. Children's ministries. Handicapped skill training. Women's training centers agricultural irrigation projects. We just got a major grant from CBN 
food banks, food distribution, rural health clinics and initiatives, the Colo Clinic, a major investment, and one for which we are struggling to find a donor. The organization that started it is a um, relief, disaster relief organization, and uh, they have been in it for eight years, and they're stepping out, so we're replacing that funding. Radio and television. When you get uh, out in the street and you ask people their favorite radio station, it's Radio Fidelity. It's the third most listened to radio station in the area. Water projects. And rural medical clinics. And then counseling, microloans, the list goes on and on and on. It has exploded in the last 15 years, and you have been a part of it. Thank you very much for what you've done. So we have many, many partners. I won't go through the list, um, but we have partners from all over the world. But I just want to challenge you that when God lays on your heart to follow him, whether to go, to give, to love, to listen, be like Zacchaeus. Be like the little children and follow him gladly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words this morning. And Lord, I just pray that out of my words, your spirit would work in the hearts and the minds of those who maybe need to give up something that's impeding their childlike faith. Or those that just need to be encouraged that following you is a joyful act, a childlike act. And I thank you for this church and their work and missions. And we ask this in Jesus' name.